television and film character of James T. Kirk, captain of the Starship Enterprise. He appeared in 79 television episodes of the series Star Trek. He was in seven theatrical films. And his most famous line of dialogue in all those years, so iconic to his character, the line that shows up on T-shirts and bumper stickers and all, of the, all over the place, the line is, beam me up, Scotty. That's, that's the most iconic line for his character, a great line that brings back all kinds of exciting memories from that show. What a wonderful line, beam me up, Scotty, except never once in all those episodes, in all those movies, did he actually ever say that. Never, ever once. Now, he came close and said some things similar to that, but he never actually said that phrase, never one time. Remember the evil queen in uh, Snow White when she says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Well, she didn't say that either. She didn't say that at all. That never happened. She says magic mirror on the wall, though most of us remember it the other way. We all remember it the other way. And uh, while we're at it, Humphrey Bogart's character in Casablanca never says, play it again, Sam. You can watch the movie and test me on that. He never says, play it again, Sam. Though if you say, what did Humphrey Bogart say in Casablanca? Yeah, I know what he said, play it again, Sam. He never says it. He never says it in the movie. He says something similar, but not that. Why is it so common for us? Why are we so prone to misremembering a line or details of a story as, as if we have this collective amnesia or this collective bad memory? It seems that someone somewhere along the way uh, publicly misquoted a line or maybe summarized a scene with one phrase and it's that version that sticks with us. It's not the original that sticks in our memory, but it's, it's the manipulated version that sticks with us and it becomes this strange communal false memory. We all remember it this way when it never happened. It really happened that way. Well, perhaps no story in history has suffered more from embellishments and false memories than the story of the birth of Jesus. In all the Gospels, we have just a few short lines about the night of his birth, but somehow over the years, we've added in all kinds of characters and set pieces to the, to the story that were never there to begin with. We all know about the mean old innkeeper, right? Who kept uh, this young couple out in the cold, uh, who turns away this woman in labor, the mean old innkeeper, right? Uh, we, have, we have names for the three wise men who bring gifts to the manger, even though none of the gospels give their names. In fact, we're never told that they were three and they show up much later. They don't, they don't show up at the manger. We remember Mary riding a donkey, traveling while in labor, racing to get to a shelter so she can have the baby, though the text never says any of this. None of these things are actually in the Gospels, and yet they become staples of our imagination. When we think about the nativity, we have all of these pieces to our memory. In the way that we view and we think about the birth of Jesus, we have all these extra details that are not in the gospel. So from time to time, it's necessary to reread the account and read closely and, and try to read without these extra layers of tradition and without these details that, that are more part of lore than they are the Bible, more, more part of Christmas cards than they are about the actual gospel. So the event that sets everything in motion at the beginning of Luke's account, uh, the, the event that sets the stage for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem is the decree of Caesar Augustus that all the world be registered. So an emperor far away in Rome 
requires a bit of accounting. He wants to know how many people he has in his empire. And that translates into, he just says, hey, we need a census. And that translates into a world of inconveniences, of, of travel, of rearrangement of lives throughout the empire to comply with his decree. This particular census required that everybody go back to their hometown to be registered. And that might sound unnecessary, and that might sound odd to us. Why don't you just count them where they are and just record their nationality and their place of birth? But um, we have records going back to the Egyptians who, this was just standard practice. When it's time to count, you go back to your hometown. The Egyptians required it, the Romans required it, and, and other civilizations required the same thing. I suppose when there are all these different nationalities living throughout an empire, uh, throughout a kingdom, there are all these races living everywhere and spread throughout the empire. And if you want to know how many of each nationality they are, if that's an important data set, and you don't have a computer database to rely on, to depend on, everything has to be done manually in writing. And so the easiest way to figure out how many Jews and Samaritans and Idumeans and how many Egyptians and how many Syrians and how many Phoenicians you have is to just get everybody to go back home. Go back to the land of your fathers and we'll count you there. And that's how we know where you are and where you're from. Well, Joseph lives up in Galilee. He lives in the town of Nazareth, but his family is from Judea in the south. So he's required to leave Nazareth to go back down to Judea to go to the city of David because Joseph is of the house and lineage of David, Luke tells us. So the fact that he has family in Bethlehem, if not even family property in Bethlehem, is the first clue that this, this, this hectic search for a hotel vacancy late at night probably didn't happen. It, there, there probably wasn't this knocking on the doors of various inns trying to find a, find a place with a vacancy. So before they head to Bethlehem, both Mary and Joseph have been visited by an angel telling them that Mary is to be the mother of the Savior. Mary has already taken her own trip to the hill country of Judea to visit her relative Elizabeth. I don't know if Elizabeth is her cousin or aunt. It's the generic word for relative. So she, but remember, she does visit uh, Elizabeth in this time, the mother of John the Baptist. So Mary and Joseph have plenty of time, knowing that the census is coming, they have plenty of time to, to make plans to be settled before she goes into labor. Now, in Bethlehem, their accommodations would have most likely been with family or on family property. Many of you have had housefuls, uh, house, houses full of people this last week, and it would have been something like that with lots of people in town for the census. But family comes in town and you find a place for them to sleep. The single men sleep over here on the floor and the single women sleep over here on the floor, probably. And you, get, you find a way to fit everybody in. You find a way to put everybody together. But what kind of living arrangement Joseph and Mary had would have de been determined by their relationship. Now, in verse 5, they're betrothed. In Luke chapter 2, verse 5, uh, it refers to Joseph's betrothed wife, Mary. So in verse 5, they're not married. Uh, betrothal seems to have been something more than what we call a, a, an engagement today. Uh, there were covenant obligations built into betrothal. Um, so it, it took something serious to break a betrothal. It wasn't just, well, I changed my mind. I don't want to get married. Betrothal was a covenant, but betrothal was not marriage. So if you're betrothed, you, you don't pretend that you're married. You don't cohabitate. You don't live together. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't take on the 
uh, responsibilities and privileges of marriage yet. So on the way to Bethlehem in verse 5, they're betrothed. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. But by verse 7, there's an assumption that they're going to be sharing living quarters together. So it may very well be that they get to Bethlehem in plenty of time to have their wedding feast there with family. And if you wonder about the propriety of them traveling together from, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem as a betrothed couple, uh, understand there are probably many other people traveling with them. And if, and if what I think happened happened, there's a huge wedding party uh, sharing the trip with with them down from Nazareth into, into Bethlehem. Because as was the custom, the first step of marriage was the betrothal. The final step in the wedding liturgy was the home taking in which the bride is taken to her husband's house. You know, some of us have the, uh, the, the, uh, the tradition of carrying the bride across the threshold of your house. Well, this was, this was a Jewish custom to bring the bride into the husband's house and to set up a new house together, set up a new unique home. So both, both the betrothal, the first step, and the home-taking are marked by public feasts. The first one, ordinarily, where possible, the first feast of betrothal happens at the uh, bride's home and is hosted by the bride's family. Uh, the, the, the bride's home would have, uh, the bride's family would have uh, had a big feast. And then, and then the second feast is hosted by the groom's family, which ends with the home-taking. He takes her home and, and publicly sets up their new home together. So imagine if this is the way this went, if, if Mary and Joseph followed the custom, then it would have gone something like this. There would have been a great feast of betrothal up in Nazareth with Mary's people, and then a great wedding procession down to, down to Bethlehem, where there is a final wedding feast in Bethlehem, wrapping up with Joseph taking her into his home. Now, now, Matthew makes sure to tell us that Joseph didn't know his wife. He didn't consummate the marriage until after the birth of Jesus. So not everything here is ordinary. I don't want to pretend like everything here was just ordinary following a script. But if, if Joseph and Mary, and, and I think it's plausible, uh, very plausible, that Joseph and Mary were married in Bethlehem, that, mean that means their living situation would have been customary for newlyweds probably at this point, a private room or a guest room attached to the larger family home. Until they could get a bigger place of their own, they're living in a, in a private apartment or a private room attached to a bigger family house. So the point here is that as a newly married couple, they're no longer sleeping in the great room with the guys on one side and the women in another part. Uh, they're no longer sleeping on the floor with other single men and, and single women. Uh, everyone crowding into the house for the census. No, at this point now that they're married, they have a small personal space, which uh, while modest, had to be suitable enough for a long-term stay because they're still there 40 days later. Remember, Mary goes to the temple to present Jesus to the temple for her purification according to the law 40 days later. So again, I don't think they're staying in a Motel 6 this whole time. I don't think they're there for 40 days. There must be something more, more permanent. So, so the idea then that, that we've imposed on the text, the idea that they were hoping to stay in a commercial inn the night of the birth of Jesus 
isn't compatible with ordinary or customary practices at the time. Weddings are big deals. We don't let a, a betrothed couple go, go off and celebrate their wedding. They didn't, they didn't run off to Bethlehem to get eloped, right? Joseph has family in Bethlehem. Mary has family in Nazareth. There would have been these, these wedding feasts, if it were ordinary and customary, they would have had these wedding feasts that would have marked the transition from Nazareth to to Bethlehem. So now with that in mind, we have to go back and read verse 7. We have to go back and, and understand what it says. So she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the, in the inn. Well, that word, everything hinges on what that word in is talking about. And here's the curious thing, that word in is translated in Luke 22 and in Mark 14 as guest room. It's the same word that's used for the upper room where Jesus goes, tell, he tells the apostles, go find a guest room in this house so that they can celebrate the, uh, the last supper. So this word here, it's the very same word that's translated guest room in other parts of the gospels. So for some reason though, translators have stuck with the word in because we have, we have so many, I think, traditional uh, 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 cultural thoughts about what is going on that night. So we want to impose the fact that it was an inn uh, and, and it gives the impression that, that Joseph and Mary wanted to stay at a hotel, but you know, there were, the no vacancy light was on and mean old innkeepers kept turning them away. But, but there's a different word for hotel. There's a different word for inn. When Luke tells the story, as Luke uses this word, Luke tells the story of the Good Samaritan uh, he puts the beaten man up at an inn. He uses a completely different word than what he uses here. This word is guest room. This word is not inn. Uh, he uses the word inn later in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what is Luke telling us here then? What, what is going on? Well, it seems that what Luke is telling us and what he's communicating is that there wasn't enough room in their little guest room, in their little newlywed apartment. There was enough room in there for birthing a baby. Childbirth was the riskiest event in the life of a woman in the ancient world. It's no, you know, it's no walk in the park today, but in the ancient world, childbirth was a risky event. And so women who were about to give birth depended on the help of relatives, of friends, of midwives in town, experienced midwives. And you want to have all hands on deck when you're having a baby. So Joseph and Mary's room, their guest room, was, was not suitable for giving birth. So the birth had to take place somewhere else, and it ends up being in a place that includes a manger. Well, we need to understand something about how uh, houses in that day were built. And, and in, in many parts of the world, they're still built this way. Houses are built to shelter both people and valuable animals, to keep the animals out of uh, the, the elements. So uh, there would be two stories. Uh, the top floor has a few rooms to house people, and the animals would be kept inside on the bottom floor. If you ever needed the bottom floor for something else besides animals, well, it's, caref it's easy to do. You just shovel out you know, everything, and you, you sweep out the bottom floor, and then you've got a great hall. It, it just is going to have some mangers in it. It's going to have a food trough, and it's going to have a, a water trough, which ends up making a crib real real handy crib in a pinch. Um, so, so if we read it this way, here's, here's something of what happens. Joseph and Mary moved to Bethlehem. After feasting with Mary's people up in Nazareth, they moved to Bethlehem with their wedding party, with many other travelers coming down to Bethlehem for the census. 
sometime after they get there, they get married, they have the wedding feast there, they set up a temporary home in a family house, a a, a temporary room in a family house. When the time comes for the delivery of the baby, they move down out of the newlywed apartment. There's no room for them in the guest room. There's no room in the, the, the quote, in the guest room. There's no room in there. So they move to the great room of the house, which is also the barn. And when she gives birth, she lays the newborn child in one of the mangers. Well, why does Luke go to all this effort to point that out? If that was, you know, if that was just what happened, it, it seems like, you know, why, why does he mention this? Why does he uh, underscore this? Well, I think there are a few important reasons for that. First of all, they're about to have a lot of visitors. We're going to read this in just a minute. We're going to read about the shepherds, but the, uh, you're going to have a lot of people showing up and you need a great room to host all of these people. There's going to be a lot of worshipers showing up. And also the sign of Jesus in a manger is, is what the shepherds are looking for. The, the angels tell the shepherds to look for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. This is going to be the indicator that this is the child they seek. So Luke gets the manger into the story by telling us, you know what, uh, Mary and Joseph were living in a guest room, but they had to get out into a bigger place so that she could have the baby, so that uh, visitors could come, so that he ends up in a manger. And of course, it's highly symbolic that the bread of heaven the bread of life would be put in a manger from the start of his life, right? The word manger comes from the Latin word to eat. Uh, I think even the French word for eat is manger. Um, Jesus is the true bread. Jesus is spiritual food so that we, you and I, come to the manger like sheep to eat, to imbibe, to feast. And we come to the manger to eat and chew and chew and, and chew. You know how uh, sheep and goats and cows are always chewing, right? They're always chewing on something. What do you, have you, you know, you've got some Wrigley's? What are you, what are you chewing on? They're always, they're always chewing on something. What is, what is going on there? Clean animals, uh, which represent Israel throughout the old covenant, clean animals uh, chew the cud. That's one of their identifiers, right? They, they're to have split hooves and they chew the cud. Uh, clean animals stand for holy people. So, so we are to always be chewing and chewing and chewing and eating and eating the word in that, in that manger, like the holy uh, or the clean animals. So I, I'm afraid that in our effort to manufacture drama around this story, painting Joseph and Mary as these homeless immigrants who get mistreated by mean-spirited capitalist hoteliers, we, we miss the real drama. That's not where the drama is. The real and rich drama is that even in his birth, Jesus is foreshadowing his death. He begins his march to the cross at his birth. This is the real drama. The the angel told Joseph that this Jesus would be the one to deliver his people from their sins. And this work, Jesus starts this work from day one. His whole purpose for coming to earth to offer the perfect sacrifice for sin, where he's headed is seen in type and shadow here. 
His mother gives birth to her son, wraps him in cloths, and uh, lays him in a manger. She lays him down in a manger. Later, his body, once again, is going to be wrapped in linen cloths, and he's going to be laid in a tomb. Here in the beginning, we have a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary uh, attending to his coming into the world. They're, They're the servants. They're the stewards standing by as Jesus comes into the world, a Joseph and a Mary. Later, a different man named Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea, and a different Mary, Mary Magdalene, attend to his burial. In both cases, in both his birth and his death and resurrection, an angel comforts Mary with the good news. An angel has comforted Mary, his mother. Another angel comforts Mary Magdalene. The Josephs both arrange for his accommodations. Angels appear to shepherds here in the beginning, and they tell them to look for a baby wrapped in cloths. Later on at the resurrection, angels tell Peter and John, different shepherds indeed, but tell, communicate to Peter and John to go uh, to a tomb and find empty linen wrappings. So, and there are so many more parallels, and the longer you think about it, the more things come to the surface. But the point of this is the life and ministry of Jesus is bookended by two miraculous events. One, his birth from a virgin womb. The second, his resurrection and his leaving behind an empty tomb. So the virgin womb and the empty tomb are the two miraculous, incredible, wonderful events that book in the ministry of our Savior. And from the moment he comes into the world, he begins marching toward his work. And there are signs and, and, and shadows of what he is going to do even in his birth. As I said Wednesday night, uh, or Tuesday night, Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas is meaningful because of the cross. Christmas is meaningful because of the resurrection. And we see echoes and shadows of, of the resurrection even from his birth. Well, let's just think about the shepherds for just a moment. And, and I'm serious that we'll take just a moment here. And I read about them, uh, and, and they're uh, out in the fields watching over their flocks, and an angel of the Lord stands before them. The glory of the Lord shines before them. In verse 10, an angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on peace, goodwill toward, toward men. I've said in the past that if the Gospels were a work of fiction, the writers would have never chosen shepherds and they would have never chosen women to be the messengers of the birth or of the resurrection of Jesus because nobody respected women and nobody respected shepherds and their testimony wasn't reliable in court. But of course, the Gospel elevates women. Jesus elevates the role and the work of women. Wherever women are respected, wherever children are protected in the world, I guarantee you it's been the result of the work of the church in society. Uh, The the gospel uh, uh, redeems and, and elevates women. But what about the shepherds? What about them? Do they get any credit? Now we assume that they're disrespected, and I believe they were, but if so, by whom? Who disrespects shepherds? Well, the Egyptians disrespected shepherds, They thought that shepherds were an abomination. They thought shepherds were loathsome. Back when Joseph is making arrangements for his family to come join him in Egypt, the Pharaoh says, give them the land of Goshen. 
Because the shepherds are loathsome to us. And you come from a shepherd people, and we don't want to hang around with those, those shepherds. So they put Israel off in the land of Goshen. Well, if we're disrespecting shepherds in this time in history, well, it, it wouldn't come as a surprise because we're living in a very Egypt-like uh, stage of history with Herod on the throne about to act like a new pharaoh and uh, aim uh, his, uh, his targets at uh, little boys, just like Pharaoh did. Herod is going to kill uh, boys again. Uh, so if, if, if shepherds are being disrespected, uh, they're disrespected by Egyptians. But in Israel, our greatest heroes are shepherds. What's wrong with shepherds? Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. The king, throughout the Psalms and throughout the prophets, the king is the shepherd of his people. Above all, Yahweh is our shepherd in Psalm 23. And in Psalm 80, Yahweh is our shepherd who leads us like a flock. In Jeremiah, God promises to raise up faithful shepherds for his people. He's going to give us kings and priests and prophets, and he calls them all shepherds. Ultimately, the coming of Jesus is the coming of the chief shepherd of his people. He is going to lead them beside the still waters. How do we know? Because all he has to do is speak and the waters calm down. Jesus, our good shepherd, leads us by the still waters. He makes us sit down on green pastures and feeds us bread and fish and, and, and provides for us there. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the model shepherd. And when he leaves his sheep, he leaves them in the hands of faithful shepherds who, whom he's trained, his apostles. So here with the angels announcing the birth of Jesus to shepherds first, we have the honoring and the recovering and the elevation of the work of shepherds. Shepherds have always been important in Israel, and now we have this restoration of the work of shepherds. These men are not a band of rednecks and knuckleheads. That's, that's not what they are at all. They're the foundation of the church. These shepherds are among the first converts to Christ. They hear the message and they believe and they go and look for the baby so that they can worship him. Verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So the first ones, they're the first ones who can ever say that they found Jesus. You've heard people say that before. Yeah, if, I got, I got cleaned up. I got my life sorted out. I found Jesus. Well, these shepherds are the first ones to ever find Jesus. In verse 17, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. And it was told them. So, so they find Jesus, but they're also the first missionaries. They're the first evangelists. They go out and they tell everybody what they've seen. They go out and they tell what the angel has told them. They go out and they tell about this baby, this king that is born. And then they come back rejoicing. So later on, the apostles are going to do this very same thing. Jesus is going to send them out and they're going to come back with reports. And he's going to send them out again and they're going to come back with good news. Paul does this three times, right? The apostle Paul goes out and he comes back in. Well, the shepherds are the first ones to do this. They go out and they preach the gospel and they come in with good news and they come in rejoicing. They follow that same pattern. They're the first uh, shepherds. They're the first pastors. They're the first evangelists, the first missionaries. And their first task that the angels give them is to go find the Lord Jesus. That's their first job. It pleases God when people get up 
and go looking for his son. It, it happens here. It happens when the men travel from the east. The wise men come from the east to look for Jesus and they find him. It happens when Jesus is 12 years old. He gets separated from his family and Joseph and Mary are pulling their hair out and they're looking for him and they find him in the temple. He's lost and then he's found. Later uh, on the day of resurrection, Mary Magdalene believes that the body of Jesus is lost. Someone has taken him and she's frantic with grief. She doesn't know where they've laid him, but she realizes, wait a minute, he's right here, right in front of me. He was lost to the grave, but she found him alive again three days later. We're seeking him now. That's what we're doing. We're looking for him. We're looking for the truth. We want to know the truth. We, we don't want to believe uh, traditions or lies or, or uh, embellishments. We want the truth. That's, that's, what, that's what pleases God. There's something about our searching for and finding Jesus that God desires. Jeremiah 29 says, when Israel's time of captivity is up in Babylon, uh, God says, then you will call upon me and go pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says Yahweh, and I will bring you back up from your captivity. God calls on his people, get up, come, look for me, come out here and find me, call on me, leave wherever you are, Stop whatever you're doing, get up and come out here where I am. I still have the Song of Songs stuck in my head. Uh, I, I keep going back to that. Now, I'll, I'll get over it in a few weeks, I promise, and we'll stop. But remember the, how the, Solomon separates from, from the Shulamite. He goes out and she has to go find him and she has to abandon herself. And even if it looks foolish, she has to humble herself and go out and find him. She goes looking for him. Abraham has to get up and go in order to be faithful. So does Isaac, so does Jacob, so does Joseph, so does Israel in bondage in Egypt. They have to get up and go out and meet God. And so you and I get the same invitation that the shepherds got. Deliberately get up, intentionally go find him, pursue him, seek his face is a, is a phrase that comes up often in the Psalms. What, what does that mean practically? What does it mean to seek his face? Well, uh, that's another way of seek, saying seek his presence, seek his good favor, to, to be before him and to be in his presence and to be in fellowship with him. That's, that's what it means to, to seek communion and, and, and uh, unity with him. Uh, to seek his face, to seek him, uh, means that, that we desire this nearness. I want to know what he says. I want to know what, I want to know what God loves. I want to be able to think his thoughts. That, that's what it means to be godly. Uh, in Colossians 3, uh, Paul says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's this, this unification with Christ that comes, this nearer and nearer, this, this coming together that comes when I, I desire to, to know what he thinks and know what he loves and know what he hates and know what he says. And Psalm 105 requires us, it says, seek him, seek his face continually to be perpetually evaluating everything. Does this thing please him? Does that thing 
satisfy him? What would he say about, about this thing over here? This thing that I hear, what does God say about that? This time that I have, what does God want me to do with it? This, these resources, this money that I have, what does, what does God want me to do with this? That's, that's what it means to, to also seek him through happy providence and bitter providence as well. Every single good thing that happens to you is an occasion for thanksgiving. You must stop and give thanks to God. And every bitter providence is an occasion for you to trust him and say, God, this is really tough. And I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but you wanted this for me today. This is what you've given to me. And so by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, I'm going to get through it. And I thank you for this opportunity to grow in you. That's, that, that's what it means. Hebrews 11 says he rewards those who seek him. First Chronicles 28 says, if you seek him, he will be found. So Christmas invites you to seek and find the Lord Jesus to come explore and wrestle and test and engage. And when you get to that manger, you will not be disappointed. You will find a treasure worth finding. Never disappointed in what you find there. Well, those are some reflections on uh, Luke chapter 2 that I pray will keep marinating in your head as you continue to rejoice this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this Jesus, and I do pray that you would stir us up by your Holy Spirit to keep seeking you in all these ways, to seek your pleasure, to seek your goodwill, to know what you've said, to follow the patterns that you have placed in the, in the world, to follow the, the pattern of creation. Father, continue to grow us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.